Hey friends, this is Holly Goodman, and you're listening to Isaac's Autism Wild Podcast, where we focus on topics related to raising loved ones touched by autism and its impact on relationships and family. I'll be sharing some of my personal parenting experiences, raising my son Isaac, who passed away in 2007, as well as an entirely different parenting experience as I now raise my son Caleb, who never ceases to blow my mind with his beautiful autism perspectives. So grab a drink and join me as I interview this week's group of exceptional autism parents. All right. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Isaac's Autism Wild podcast. I have my friend G. Debbie Williams joining me again. He is a self-advocate who is actually originally from Arizona, but is in Washington State going to Washington State University. And so you also have your own um, autismchoseme.org and you do interviews as well. So you have your own YouTube channel slash it's actually video interviews that you have uh, available that you interview different individuals um, related to autism. But um, I asked you back because we did a podcast in the past. We talked, we're talking about the, the red and blue debate, the red instead neurodiversity movement and um, the lighted up blue uh, family or people that have that mindset. And so we've kind of decided that, you know, we were kind of talking a, a lot of the purple shade, the shade of the red, there's elements of red and blue that we, that really resonate with both of us. And so we, you know, have still, we, now I call it, I'm calling it the purple movement if, if um, <laughs> lack of another term. Um, so that was our first podcast, but today I wanted to have you back because uh, you gave us a little bit of a background of you, of your diagnosis, how old you were. And so I just wanted to follow up on some of those things and just learn a little bit more about, um, you know, growing up and some of the interventions that you did and how you felt about those, because in the neurodiversity movement, there is, um, you know, have a heavy support of the neurodiversity, um, nothing, they're just differences that aren't necessarily wrong or broken or need to be corrected or addressed. And so a lot of um, self-advocates that are part of that neurodiversity movement believe that, you know, therapy interventions are not necessary. And so I thought that, you know, again, when some of us are raising children that don't have the ability to communicate their needs and wants and their feelings about how they feel about some of these interventions. And so I think it's always good to just put it in perspective and talk to self-advocates about how they felt about some of these therapy interventions that they've done. So if we could just scooch back, because you were originally, you are from Arizona, which is a little different. You guys have different, as with all states, you know, different services and supports are different state to state for individuals that have disabilities. And so would you mind just kind of sharing, you got your diagnosis when you were, um, how old were you again? I was five. Oh, I, was five. five okay. years old. I was just talking to a self-advocate about 10 minutes ago and she also was five. And so I was thinking to myself that maybe I had my numbers wrong and I was thinking about, so you were five when you got the diagnosis and yes. And so again, you, so just kind of maybe explain how the diagnosis went and like your parents, you know, how they, again, they went to the internet, they Googled and researched, you know, autism, um, so maybe just walk us through that air, that timeline, because you do actually have a fair, a fair amount of memories of that time frame when you were first diagnosed with autism. Do you not? 
Yes, I do have a very fair amount of memory. Um, I was four years old when I got my memory, and uh, I, I remember most uh, most life events uh, right when I got my memory. And then a year later, a year and a half later, after I got my memory, I was diagnosed with autism. Um, the therapy intervention program that I do remember, and it really wasn't until the late 2000s, around 2008, when I started getting uh, therapy intervention programs. The first one was occupational therapy. Um, that was the first one, and it was at a location. I'd have to ask my parents what location it was at, but um, it was um, um, it was a location that specialized in occupational therapy therapy for kids with autism and other developmental disabilities. And then um, the same location did music therapy. And um, what what I would do was um, I would before it was it was every Tuesday and Wednesday. So Tuesday was music therapy. Wednesday was occupational therapy. And they were both in the morning time, right when school was going on. So um, when I got up to get ready, um, I wouldn't go to school right away. I would go to do my occupational and music therapy sessions. And then that would last for about an hour or an hour and a half. Then I would leave after my appointments were over there. And I would go to, I would go to class and uh, start school at my, at the uh, elementary school I went to. So, um, what entailed with occupational music therapy, um, I'll start with music therapy first because that was a little more simpler. It would s- simply be where, um, I forgot the teacher's name. Uh, he was he was a really cool guy. He was really nice. But um, from what I remember, what he did was he would, um, he had his guitar and he was a musician. He was like a, a musician who recorded nursery rhymes for children. And um, that's what he specialized in. And he would use his music therapy lessons with his guitar to help me focus and concentrate. Um, I think Although music therapy, I didn't say I wouldn't say it helped me 110 percent. It uh, it guided me in the right direction, at least that um, that it got that it at least uh, veered me to a good start and to, um, you know, focusing and concentrating more. Because one of the problems I had about being autistic was my sensory issues and communication issues. Whenever, say, we're talking, I would sometimes dominate the conversation or just walk away from the conversation when you're not finished. So I had those problems and the music therapy really helped me focus in a way that'd be like, okay, um, when I'm talking to someone, what can I think about? Okay, something I like, music or um, movies or entertainment. So music therapy helped with that. And then occupational therapy, it was a little more complex, but I tell you, occupational therapy was fun. I thought it was a lot better than music therapy, a lot funner, if that's a word. I think funner um, should be a word because it's a, it just sounds fun. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was more uh, entertaining. I guess that's yeah. what than uh, music therapy. Occupational therapy employed more uh, physical games and uh, uh, more, it delved a little more into communication and working together with somebody because I wasn't the only one that was that was um, present for my occupational therapy sessions. There was another kid. Um, I don't, um, I don't know what he's doing now. It's been years since I've seen him. Uh, his name was Luke. And uh, he used to um, go to, he used to be at the same uh, occupational therapy sessions that I attended. And um, we would always play these fun little games where we, you know, um, find the, find the figures. Like uh, it was a, it was a a little puzzle game where, um, uh, you know what I'm talking about, Holly, Um, where you would, um, there would be these pictures and there'd be these hidden images that you'd have to find. Yeah. Like, okay, there's a pencil. I have to find a pencil. I'd have to circle it. Yeah. And that really helped me with focus and concentration. And then we would also play blocks. Um, sometimes we would, there'd be an arcade game that was uh, stationed uh, in the occupational therapy room. So I would play arcade games with Luke in there. And um, the the two, the two uh, occupational, 
OT therapist I have where um, her, the, her, her name was Teresa. Um, this was back in 2008. And then a year later, she moved to Oregon. And then um, after after she moved, uh, Curtis became my uh, occupational therapy teacher. And uh, both of them were really cool. Um, Teresa was really nice. Uh, she was very caring and kind hearted. And Curtis was kind of, you know, he was kind of like the hippie, very laid back and chill. He'd let us, um, he wouldn't just let us like screw around and do uh, just whatever he wanted. He would have us stay focused, but he would, he would do it in a way that that was easygoing. Yeah. Um, he used that positive reinforcement. So those were the kind of things I did in occupational therapy. Sounds like you're probably using some of your natural interests so that you guys weren't completely, you guys felt like you were able to do some of the fun things that you wanted to do, but there was, you know, probably guiding, using those natural interests to try and build some of the skills that he wanted to get accomplished in those sessions, which is genius, right? Right. And without trying to say that um, autism um, is a disease, no, I'm not trying to say this in a way, but, um, you know, my parents put me in occupational music therapy to fix those problems I had. And that's why I say um, I'm not trying to say it in a way that I'm saying autism is a disease because I'm saying that they need to fix my issues. So that could be misinterpreted. But um, those are just uh, those are simple, simply just problems I had. And yeah. those are problems that I needed to adjust um, because the other thing is too, the reason why I was put in occupational music therapy was because due to my autistic traits and characteristics, my behavioral and communication issues were a few years behind my peers in class. So I was in third grade when I started doing occupation, uh, um, occupation and music therapy. Uh, my, um, my communication and behavioral skills were three grades behind that. So they were at the level of a kindergarten or first grader. So my parents put me in occupation and music therapy to fix those issues. And it took, a, it took three years. I left, um, I left occupational therapy in 2011 because I felt like I didn't need it anymore. But I tell you those three, those three years were worth it. I wouldn't trade them for anything. And boy, were they, were they freaking fun? I mean, yes. I, if I could do them again, I would go back to now. I wouldn't even mind uh, being like a consultant or a volunteer for that location where, where I was at. So yeah, you're that. absolutely right. I will tell you, um, I think, so Isaac did occupational therapy and Caleb did occupational therapy. And I will tell you of all the different interventions that we did, neither one of them would fight or complain about going to occupational therapy because it was just darn good fun. So when you decided that you didn't need it anymore, was that a decision that you kind of came to the resolution that like, Hey mom, dad, I don't feel like I need occupational therapy anymore. Or was it kind of like, um, how did you kind of decide did, what did your occupation therapist feel that you had made the progress that you needed and you were like closer to your peers in terms of like developmental, you know, um, like levels. How did you guys decide that you were done with occupational therapy? Well, it wasn't my occupational therapist that decided it. Um, the thing is, it was just, it was also becoming redundant. I wasn't getting tired of doing it, but, um, I, I got, my communication skills were at an all-time high. I, my communication skills caught up to my peers um, in grade school. And I just naturally felt like, you know what? My Most of my issues are fixed. I know there's still a lot of work to be done with my issues, but I'm at the point where I can um, solve those issues by myself. I mean, I was in sixth grade. Um, I was about to go to junior high the following year. So I knew, you know what? It's, I think it's just a good time to say goodbye and uh, move on because, um, and it's not necessarily like if, if I had, if my parents said, no, you have to be in here for one year, I wouldn't mind doing it. 
Yeah. But again, it was just one of those things where I'm like, you know what, it's just, uh, it's time to move on. And again, I felt like it was the best decision for me. And looking back now, 10 years later, um, I think I made, I think I made the right decision to, um, to leave. And I left at the perfect time. Yeah. I left when, again, my, my, my communication and behavior skills were at an all time high and they've gotten better ever since. And, um, again, I, I wouldn't, um, I wouldn't trade that, um, decision for anything. I wouldn't. Sure. Do you, what do you think? So occupational therapy, you feel like definitely helped you improve some of the skills and had like kind of helped you fill in for some of like your, not your strength, your, like the areas that you were struggling. Um, what, when you left occupational therapy, because you said you knew that there was still progress that you wanted to make in certain areas, like how did you then work on them independently without the need for having therapy interventions? Because that was the last time you were actually in organized therapy interventions, correct? Um, yes. Well, I actually, um, I actually had, um, a therapist, um, in seventh and eighth grade, but it wasn't occupational music therapy. It was like, um, it was like a psychology, psychological therapy because, but that was for other issues. Um, but in regards to your question, um, that was the last time I needed those organized therapies for, um, people with developmental disabilities and, uh, to go into your, the, to the second part of your question, um, my the the way I handled my behavior and communication skills on my own um, was was just simply learning from what occupational and music therapy taught me. You know, when for example I was dominating the conversation, I would put my finger up and say, "You know what? Gee, enough is enough. Let the other person talk. Um, let it be 50-50, um, 50% me, fifty percent him, uh, him or her." And um, I would also. I would, what I would also learn, what I also learned from, uh, occupational music therapy was when I would veer away and, um, when I would veer away from the conversation and not focus, I would use, um, something that I really liked or admired, such as music or movies to, um, focus my attention back to the conversation. That solution doesn't work all the time. Sometimes I'll get so focused on the music. I just completely forget the conversation overall, but it does help. And I believe some trying something is better than doing nothing at all. And I'm telling you, doing nothing before occupational therapy got me nowhere. So, um, so those were, those were the solutions that I used, um, from occupational therapy to really help me, um, achieve success, communicating and, um, communicating and interacting with peers and adults just by myself. Sure. And when I got my job, when I got my first job at Walmart, when I was 16, it was June 9th, June 9th of 2017. Um, I would say, I would say those communication skills, I use those skills to really help because I'm a cashier. I'm a cashier at Walmart or I was a cashier and I'm in a e-commerce, but at the time I was a cashier ringing people up and that requires the most customer to customer interaction in all of retail. So I got to be super focused. And if I'm veering away, dominating the conversation, walking away from a conversation when a customer is talking and trying to tell me something important, important, such as a payment, for example, then that could either really upset them or that could really irritate them. Most of all, it could irritate my employees and my managers to the point where I could possibly get fired or coached. So um, the reason why I'm saying that is because um, I I didn't just use those skills. I didn't just use those skills um, from OT and MT therapy um, right after 
um, right afterwards that helped me in junior high, but I use them. Um, I've been using them since I've been using them at Walmart and I've been using them uh, on the job when I go to speak to kids, when I'm doing my business. So it's, it's really expand. So it's, that's how I've really been able to do this all by myself. Yeah. All by myself. Well, and I think that it's um, really powerful that you actually had the perspective that you knew that you were talking too much. And so then you conscious, you pulled yourself back and decided that, okay, so we're going to make, I'm going to make sure it's going to be 50, 50, because that is a really difficult thing for some people to be able to self-identify that they're talking too much. And so I think that that's, um, you know, and that music there, you know, certainly interventions kind of start again, you're creating new neuro pathways in the brain so that you have that capacity to start registering like, you know, Oh, like, I think I'm talking too much when you, you got your job. Um, you and I have talked a little bit about your working work for Walmart and you have, were honest and saying, you know, some people have, you know, like bad feelings towards Walmart. You know, I always had a really positive experience with Walmart. Um, now when you talk about, so you were a cashier, so they had, so were you, they knew when they hired you that you were on the autism spectrum or was that any information that you disclosed to them when you applied for that job? I disclosed that information to them. Uh, I didn't put that on my resume or anything. Uh, I told them uh, during my first interview, I have autism. I'm on the spectrum. So I, I don't need any severe um, treatment or um, liability, but that's just something that you might want to know. So if there's anything that happens on the job where I do sh- slightly show my traits of autism, uh, you know, you know what I told you and you know not to treat me any differently than uh, my other coworkers. Did that give them, um, were they better than about supporting you? If for some reason you maybe had a like communication mishap with a customer, or maybe you missed a social cue, were they then more understanding about supporting you and working and and coaching you in terms of how to handle a situation better next time? Or did they really just let you be you? And if there was mistakes, then, you know, just mistakes happen or did they have any, so how did that work? Well, I'd say this, um, they didn't treat me any differently than my other coworkers. Um, Walmart's always been really good at that. Um, no matter whether, no matter your race, no, no matter your orientation, whether you're black or Hispanic or gay or lesbian, they'll still treat you the same just as everybody else. Um, if they didn't, then, you know, they wouldn't be in business now. But, um, but the reason why I'm saying that is because, um, yeah, whenever whenever I made a mistake on the job, and it may have it may have had something to do with my autism. Most of the mistakes I made personally at Walmart are just natural mistakes that any neurotypical person would make. Everyone does that, especially when you're 16 and still learning so much about life in general. So when I made a mistake, they would um, they would understand, and sometimes there would be miscues and misunderstandings. But of course, we'd work around that, and they'd help me. And whether a customer got angry or not, we'd still work around it. Um, but that's just with anybody. Um, I would say, you know, I would say the only, the only times I would show my autism was when I would sometimes have, um, fun, loud outbursts, um, during Walmart, trying to motivate my coworkers or motivate the customers. Um, a couple of my coworkers didn't understand it and, um, they didn't, they just, they were trying, they were trying hard to get me, but they just couldn't get me. But over time they started to like me and understand me more. But those were, that's really the only time I would say my autistic characteristics and traits showed on the job. I mean, if you ask, I worked in a neighborhood market um, in Arizona where everyone knew each other. So if you ask any customer who knows me there, um, 
who didn't know I was autistic and you told them, they'd probably never guess it. They probably wouldn't because I never really showed it to them. Sure. Anyway. Sure. So um, when you talk about sharing your diagnosis, you are very open about your autism diagnosis. You have, again, you have your, your website, Autism Chose Me. You go and you talk to young people um, about autism. So you very much are a very um, strong advocate for individuals on the autism spectrum, but um, there are parents out there that are really in a place where, you know, they're afraid of labeling their child. They're afraid of the autism diagnosis or even an ADHD diagnosis because they feel like it labels a child and that that label in some way could uh, negatively impact them in terms of being one treated the same as everyone else, um, or maybe they aren't going to be offered the same opportunities as, as neurotypical peers. And so it's that quandary of, you know, to share or not to share. And so, you know, again, you said that you were open with Walmart, that you had an autism spectrum disorder, but from that point forward, your employer just treated you as um, you were just any other uh, employee. But are there any times in your life um, you felt like, wow, it is not to my benefit to share the fact that I have an autism spectrum disorder? Um, or are you of the mindset where you share because, you know, to share means that you're actually changing perceptions and it's an opportunity to coach, educate um, people in terms of awareness and inclusion. So kind of, or has it changed throughout your life in terms of how you felt about it early on, but now your perspective has changed? Um, so you're asking me, sorry, you're asking me, um, has there has there ever been a changing perspective with yeah. businesses? On yeah, well, business? just, I wouldn't even say with businesses, but just being open about the fact that you have autism, like you're at, at WSU right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm assuming that you're pretty open with all of your, your peers and professors at WSU that you have autism, or are there some people that you choose to share it with? And then other people you choose not to share it with because you're concerned that that would have negative you know, somehow that would be negative if you were to share that you're on the autism spectrum. You know, I'm kind of neutral um, on that question. Um, with with my answer, I'm kind of neutral because um, it just depends. You know, sometimes I'll say it, sometimes I don't. It doesn't really make a difference if I do. Um, 10, 10, 11 years ago, it would make a huge difference because I was so young with autism, still learning so much about it. Even my parents were. But now it's just like, you know, I either say it or I don't. Um, it really wouldn't make a difference. I said it to most of my friends and my friends don't treat me any differently. Um, their perceptions have changed because I do send them the TikTok and Instagram videos and posts that I post frequently. So they're learning a lot. But so they've so there's their perspectives change on autism. But um you know, as, as far as, again, as far as me, um, I, I'm pretty much neutral um, on that. Like I said, again, I, I'll say that I have autism and um, sometimes I, I just don't say it. Sure. Um, you have mentioned in the past that you have, you have some feelings about the topic of ableism. And I don't know if everybody knows what ableism is. Would you mind explaining like what ableism is when it comes to our community? Yeah. So just like how racism um, is prejudice against um, a certain uh, race or ethnicity or cultural background, um, ableism is kind of like uh, racism, but with orientation um, or or specifically the orientation is uh, kids, uh, people with disabilities, um, mm-hmm. mental or physical disabilities. So um, people who make fun of me for being autistic for so, so, so sometimes saying, uh, oh, don't worry, um, everyone's a little autistic. That's 
that's a very ableist thing to say, um, acting like, um, and then like, oh, we shouldn't be treated as, you know, we should, we, um, if, if we need any, um, extra disability services, we shouldn't have it because everyone's a little autistic. That's an ableist thing to say. So that's just an example, or it's something simple, like, um, uh, get out of here, you retard. That's ableist. That's sure. very ableist. That's like the worst ableist you could ever hear. And I've heard that before. Um, and um, nowadays, just like um, just like how most m- most prejudice um, to an extent is very subtle, like it's not up in your face. Ableism is very it can be very subtle nowadays. You know, I've working at Walmart. I've seen a lot of customers. I've seen a lot of people um, have. I've uh, cheered with a lot of people, um, dealt with a lot of people. And, um, you know, it's with um, with the customers at Walmart. And it's, again, it's not just as Walmart. This is just in life in general, you know, just seeing a stranger on the street who I interact with. Um, I can tell I can tell when some are ableist and some are not. They just don't show it because, you know, they don't want to look like a total D-bag in front of everybody. Yeah. Um, so so, you know. Um, ableism, I, to me is a lot more subtle than it was 15 years ago. You know, you know, 20 years ago was up in your face, you know, um, autistic people would be called retards most of the time. Um, you you know, bully bullies would do it and they wouldn't even care if a hundred people saw it. Uh, But nowadays, again, it's, it's behind closed doors. They'll call people who are ableist will call people retards. They'll call black people, the N word behind closed doors. Mm -hmm. Um, because that's, again, it's very subtle. Um, but, um, but, you know, as, as far to just to answer your question that ableist ableism, um, is prejudice or discrimination against, um, autistic, uh, autistic individuals or just individuals with developmental disabilities like autism. Yeah. And think where I see ableism is, you know, when you have individuals that need like academic accommodations, like um, for an example is Caleb um, has to, he, part of his accommodations for his IEP at school is, is that he gets his books in audio format. Well, there is people out there that think that that is, well, you know, then it's kind of like, oh, well, it must be nice to be like disabled and you get to have your audio books, you know? And so there's that mentality that like, you know, oh, must be nice sort of a thing that you get this or Caleb also does not have to handwrite his assignments. Even in elementary school, he was given an iPad so that he could type his answers on his worksheets using um, a scan app on his iPad. And so that ableist mindset in elementary school is, is that, well, Caleb gets to type his answers and we, I have to write it because, you know, like must be nice, like, you know, being, you know, disabled or being autistic because, you know, it's this mindset that it's not, you know, like in, in elementary school, I see it's that mindset of it's not fair. Um, so like in elementary school, I see it more as, you know, that feeling where the peer, their neurotypical peers get frustrated because these kids, well, they get it easy because they, you know, don't have to do the full assignment or they get to type their answers. They get someone to read it to them. And so then it creates this issue of like, well, you know, you know, it's life's easier for them. And so it does perpetuate that mindset, that ableist mindset of the, you know, that somehow some of these things then become stigmatized. I really wish like an education, everyone gets 
gets the option of having um, audiobooks. Everyone has the option of typing their assignments versus handwriting their assignments. You know, because you know, every individual differences need to be you know celebrated versus stigmatized. So there's more subtle ways of ableist mindset. And I even have heard about from parents and self advocates that even in college they feel this you know ableist mindset from professors just when you know a student is asking for accommodation you know because you know of a learning disability or some sort of you know um, neurodiversity there's that mindset of the you know okay you know we're gonna you know we have it's this big thing or some inconvenience to be able to allow some of those accommodations that just help people with you know be more successful. So that's where I have seen it. Um, you know, I haven't yet gotten to the workforce with my kiddo to see, you know, how that plays out, you know, like in other contexts, but that's why I'm a real big believer in, you know, inclusion education models where we have gen ed students and special ed students in the same classroom and we're destigmatizing some of these accommodations and everybody works at their own pace and there's not lesser um, than or better than, you know, everybody works at their own pace and we all get there when we get there and we're not stigmatizing it. So, and you do feel that there is, you know, as a self-advocate, do you feel that ableists, um, that there's more ableism out there than what people are aware of because maybe they have never put it in context and how people apply these perceptions to people with disabilities or neurological differences. Oh yes. Oh yes. You know, you know, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna say as a matter of giving up, but you know, I don't think you're ever just like how, you know, you're, you're never going to completely abolish racism to 0%. It's not like it's going to be scattered. Um, you're never going to abolish ableism. Yes, you want to prevent it from happening in a huge majority of communities, especially low-income communities where it happens frequently. But um, again, there's a lot of ableism going on still. Um, again, like I said, where it's very subtle, um, you could just see someone walking down the streets of downtown Spokane, and they they probably be ableist, but of course they don't show it out loud like they would be 50 years ago. Sure. Um, so yeah, there's still a lot of ableism going on that people don't even know about. And uh, the thing is, um, and just like, and this is in regards to the Red Instead and Light It Up Blue movement of how they've been, um, how Red Instead's been really clashing with the Light It Up Blue movement. Sometimes autistic individuals, especially ones who support Red Instead, will use ableist slurs against um, individuals, um, other individuals with autism or other disabilities who support the Light It Up Blue movement. I mean, I, I, um, uh, uh, one of my TikTok videos, I don't know if you saw it, but I expressed that I was donating to Autism Speaks and uh, I did get a lot of hateful comments on it. Did I did I get um, upset about it? I mean, they're hecklers. I'm not going to get mad about hecklers. They're they're commenting on something that they won't even say in front of my face. So I don't even care. I yeah. just delete the comments. But I did get uh, quite a bit of hateful comments as expected. I didn't expect that I wasn't going to get those comments. So um so, and they did say some, they, the autistic individuals said some very ableist things. I mean, they called me a retard. They called me, um, they called me um, a disgrace for someone who's autistic for donating to Autism Speaks. And um, most, and most of all, they, they, 
they said that I'm, I'm not autistic. They said, um, from a, from a psychological standpoint, I'm not autistic because I support autism speaks. They were just saying some ridiculous stuff like that. So, um, but that's, that's very ableist. And, and then that's what I'm talking about. So, so to answer your question, most, a lot of ableism is still around. Um, I don't, I think if you, it's going to get to the point where you can only get to like five to six percent ableism you can never abolish it to zero percent because there are always going to be those people that are ableist and just prejudiced jerks no matter what no matter what you do um but you know again like i said it's 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 expanded to happening in the autism community itself and that's something again i never would have thought when i was diagnosed i mean i never thought autistic people would be saying ableist things against each other I mean, that's ridiculous. It's just like two superheroes fighting against each other. That's just stupid. Exactly. I completely agree. It's just, it's interesting where, you know, ableism exists in day-to-day world. And you're right, we're never going to abolish it. But one of the most um, caustic and abrasive comments that are being said out there are actually uttered amongst our own autism community self-advocates. And so that's some of the stuff that I just find to be really shocking. The other thing too, is I think, you know, to what you said is that, you know, you clearly, you cannot, you must not be autistic because if you believe, if you don't believe X, Y, and Z, then you can't be autistic. And that just, again, is also, you know, pretty preposterous because it eliminates any like individual differences. Everyone can have individual differences. And, and so it's just, it's, it's interesting that that's um, kind of where this movement is. Um, I had a couple other questions for you. Um, as you know, so you actually look back at therapy interventions and think very positively of them. Um, what about as an adult? Because one of the things that I think, you know, what you said was so perfect and it kind of aligns with my mindset is when, you know, I, I work at the Isaac foundation, I work with hundreds of families, you know, some of the kids that I worked with when they were younger, you know, now we're 14 years later, they're young adults. Um, and so when I go back and I look at some of like the young teens and adults that, um, I, you know, have worked with a lot of them and therapy interventions around middle school. Um, and so you see, you know, like obviously early intervention, you, you know, as early as you can plug in interventions. And then what I see is exactly what you said. It's like that you're kind of that shift of the mindset. We're moving from that elementary mindset into the middle school, junior high mindset. And it just seems like a natural place to just kind of take a break from therapies and just kind of see how we do, like how, you know, are we keeping up with our peers socially, um, that sort of thing. And so it's interesting that that's kind of when you just felt like you were just ready to be in a new phase of your life. Now, what I have seen is once we start getting into high school, I see this new bubble where there's kind of like a next developmental jump, it seems, where then I start having some of my high school kids um, struggling kind of with some of the social differences because there's kind of like different social expectations in high school. And so they're really struggling with some of those, um, you know, nuances of social communication and social interaction, but there's really not really good interventions, um, available for teens and young adults. So my question is, is that, you know, obviously your communication skills are top notch. 
Um, but is there, do you see that maybe there is a place that there should be maybe some more like opportunities, intervention opportunities for like teens and young adults, because as you're transitioning out of high school or you moving into college, or maybe you're entering the workforce, that there could be some supports for adults that's not really in existence, or um, is that not something you've ever really contemplated? Well, um, you know, in Washington, I'm sure there's not enough for teens and young adults. In Arizona, there are a lot of intervention programs. And that's just me coming from a different part of the country. Um, in Arizona, I've been to um, California. There's a lot in California. There's a, there's quite a bit in New Mexico, too. Um, those, con- those states are right next to Arizona, left and right. Um, I... You know, with, with what you said, though, if there's not enough in Spokane, Washington, uh, Washington in general, um, I guess there needs to be more overall because I'm sure Arizona, California and uh, New Mexico are just exceptions, maybe along with a couple other states. So it makes me wonder how many other states do we not know about that don't have those necessary uh, intervention programs for teens and young adults. Um, I do believe that there needs to be one in at least one school in every part of the United States and every part of America, because if you don't have those important intervention programs for teens and young adults, it's like they made a lot of good progress when they were little, but um, this may not be the case for every autistic individual, but for a good handful, um, their progress completely stops and they really struggle um, through middle school and high school. And middle school, I'm telling you, that's those two years are the most important, um, are some of the most important years because that's when your body's changing. You're becoming a teenager, um, not only and add that with the autistic, the autistic behaviors and characteristics, but you're having hormonal changes and behavioral changes naturally going on with you. You know, you're getting into date boys, date girls. So all those things are going on. So again, you need those teen and young adult early intervention programs, because if you don't, again, like I said, in layman's terms, then there's going to be, then there's going to be a lot there. The autistic individuals who are teenagers and young adults who don't get those programs are really going to be struggling later on in life. And that even goes to finding a job. I mean, without um, those intervention programs throughout, you know, throughout grade school and without some other, some other programs that I took personally um, throughout uh, junior high, I probably would have never landed a job at Walmart and have been a very fluent and consistent cashier. So again, you need those programs so badly. There's some in Arizona and there's some uh, in other states, like I said, but again, it seems like there's just, there's still not enough. There's there's definitely a gap in Washington. And so, you know, again, you know, as a parent, I think I know what my child needs. And so I would want some of these programs to be available to him. But again, perspective is, is that, you know, even just because I think that they would be needed, does do self-advocates feel like, yes, it would be nice to have access to some interventions in that age range, because, you know, what I think is, is, would be beneficial may not be something that actual self-advocates think would be beneficial. So Mm-hmm. Wonderful. Well, thank you, DW. I appreciate you joining me yet again for a podcast. Is there any final thoughts that you have before we wrap up? Yes. Yeah, so um, the uh, people first that you were mentioning at the beginning of the podcast, oh, yeah. um, remember I told you about Evelyn Jean, the uh, autistic self-advocate who supports Red Instead? Yes. I will reach out to her immediately after this podcast and ask her about um, people first because oh. I'd really want to know. I yeah. would really want to. 
Yeah, I just want to be sensitive and understand why the people first language is, you know, less desirable so that that way I'm just informed and and respectful. So that would be wonderful. Well, thank you, GW, for joining me on this episode of Isaac's Autism Wild. I appreciate the fact that you give up your time to be part of us and giving us an insight into just, you know, the perspectives of a self-advocate. It's really important to parents. So I appreciate that you give up your time to do that. And I hope we can get you back again on a podcast. Absolutely. I would love to anytime, anytime. Wonderful. All right. Well, thanks for listening. We'll catch you next time. And that's it for now. If you want to be notified of our next podcast release, be sure to hit subscribe. And just remember, we're all in this together. So find your tribe and hold them tight.